Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are Night's <laughs> Entertainment. Here are the reasons for the wrong place. You're going to melt just like a green sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Always hold on to all this. I know you should escape my sight, but those who worship me might be where my power green lantern lies. I bet the universe howled in despair for I have returned. We have no more use for this one. Kill him. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. With me as always is my co-host. Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nico and I cover the return of the DC Nation podcast with new episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, The Flash, and Arrow after all those shows have been off on hiatus for quite a while. But before all that, we're going to kick things off with News with Nico, DC Headlines. Young Justice Season 3. After years of petitions and fan campaigns, the beloved DC Comics animated series Young Justice is finally heading towards a third season. Actor Kari Payton from The Walking Dead, who voices Aqualad on the show, confirmed that voice recording sessions have begun on the new season. In a tweet, he also dropped a cryptic hint, and we start once more for The Fallen. Hashtag Young Justice, hashtag Season 3. The Fallen can only be referring to Kid Flash, aka Wally West, who vanished into the Speed Force in the last episode of the original Young Justice. But how will the show bring Wally back. As always, we look to the comics for clues where Wally West has been lost and come back from the Speed Force more than once. The first time Flash's Wally West vanished into the Speed Force was shortly after he discovered its existence during the events of the storyline Terminal Velocity. He learned it was his love for Linda that was his tether from the Speed Force to the real world. In the Young Justice series, Wally isn't dating Linda Park, but fellow team member Artemis. Could his love for his heroic girlfriend be the thing that eventually pulls Wally back into the real world? The second time that Wally disappeared into the Speed Force was at the end of the 2005 DC Comics event series Infinite Crisis. When Wally returns from the Speed Force, there's a good chance he'll return much older, similar to how the comics Wally came back with two preteen children who were infants when he went in. If that's the case, expect him to ditch the kid Flash persona for good and become the new Flash, even if Barry Allen still uses the name on the show. The comics have proven there is room for more than one hero to be named the Flash. Despite Wally West's popularity, DC has always underestimated how beloved he is by fans. So in DC Rebirth, when DC rebooted their universe with the New 52 back in uh, 2011, many characters got 21st century upgrades, but Wally West was nowhere to be found, and that really upset a lot of people. It seemed, in fact, that he never even existed in this newer, younger DC universe, which sent many Flash fans into a tizzy. Eventually, DC gave fans an all-new Wally, who was a young African-American teenager who would become the new Kid Flash. And while many fans applauded DC becoming more diverse with the new Wally, it simply wasn't the Wally West many had grown up with, who had been Kid Flash and grown into assume the Flash mantle. The cries for classic Wally West to return never died down, and with DC Rebirth in 2016, fans finally got their wish and the original adult Wally returned. It could be that the Young Justice version of Wally West has a similar effect on the world when he vanished into the Speed Force, and the world slowly forgets his existence. He might need to rely on the memories of his friends and teammates to be able to break free and come back to Earth. Regardless of how they do it, I think Kid Flash and Wally West will be part of Season 3, and I can't wait for Season 3 to start. Arrow Finale, Menu Bennett returning for island-centric Season Ender. Arrow is returning to familiar territory for its upcoming Season Finale, welcoming back a familiar face and mask in the process. Thanks to a series of tweets from Team Arrow on Monday, we now know that Manu Bennett, aka Slade Wilson and Deathstroke, will return for the impending finale, which is titled Leanne. You. For those who don't speak fluent Arrow, that's the name of the infamous hellish island where Oliver Queen began his journey to become something else. Arrow star Stephen Amell got the spoiler party started by tweeting a picture of the Deathstroke mask and welcoming Bennett back into the fold. It was previously announced that Katie Cassidy, as Black Siren, will return to Arrow for the final two episodes of season five before achieving series regular status in season six. Though a masked Deathstroke made an appearance during Arrow's 100th episode back in November, Bennett hasn't 
shown his face in Star City since the middle of Season 3 in 2015, and TV Line has confirmed that Bennett will be returning as Deathstroke. I like this, and it finishes the parallels with this story and the first season that were the focus of the flashbacks all season on Arrow. Supergirl season finale, Tyler Hoechlin finally returning as Superman. Tyler Hoechlin, who first appeared as Clark Kent Superman in the second season premiere, will return for the CW drama's upcoming finale. Specific details surrounding his return are not yet available, and of course, Hoechlin's return is just the latest piece of exciting casting news to come out of the sophomore series. Katie McGrath, aka Lena Luthor, has recently been promoted to series regular for season three. I'm excited for Superman's return to this series. DC Entertainment to launch its own streaming service with Greg Berlanti's Titans. In a sort of real-life superhero team-up, DC Entertainment, which makes comics, movies, and TV shows with iconic characters like Batman and Superman, is partnering with Warner Brothers to make a DC-branded, direct-to-consumer digital service, the company announced on Tuesday. Think of it as Netflix for Batman. The platform will launch in 2018 with an exclusive live-action drama series called Titans from a murderer's row of superhero producers consisting of superstar screenwriter Akiva Goldman... DC Entertainment President Jeff Johns, overworked producer Greg Berlanti, who currently has six series on the air and two more Titans and Black Lightning in the works, and Arrowverse executive producer Sarah Schechner. Titans follows a team of young superheroes from across the DC universe led by Dick Grayson, formerly known as Robin. This incarnation will include Starfire, Raven, and many others. It's based on the long-running Teen Titans comic series, which has spawned several animated incarnations, including the current Teen Titans Go on Cartoon Network and the former Young Justice series. DC's rival Marvel has its own live-action teenage superhero series New Warriors in the works at Freeform as well. The third season of animated series Young Justice, subtitled Outsiders, will also be revived exclusively to this platform. It originally aired on Cartoon Network, but was cancelled in 2013. Both series are in early stages of production, as is the platform itself, which doesn't have a name as of yet. I think this service has serious potential, whereas the CBS All Access does not, so I will probably be supporting this one. Arrow plots Nyssa versus Talia battle. Arrow is staging a sisterly showdown. Katrina Law will return to the CW drama as Nyssa al Ghul for a multiple episode arc culminating in an epic fight between the former League of Assassins leader and her half-sister Talia al Ghul, played by Lexa Doig, in the season 5 finale. Also appearing during the season's finale episodes are Law's fellow Spartacus alum Manu Bennett as Slade Wilson and Nick Tarabay as Captain Boomerang, whose characters are both currently locked up in an Argus Supermax prison on MNU. Supergirl, Callista Flockhart returning for final episodes of Season 2. TV Line has confirmed that Callista Flockhart will reprise the role of Cat Grant in the final two episodes of Supergirl's second season. Unfortunately, any further details, including the reason for Cat's return, remain tightly under wraps. A series regular during Supergirl's first season, Flockhart appeared in just two episodes of Season 2 before bidding Kara and company adieu. As expressed repeatedly by the show's producers, a return has been in the cards for quite a while. It has always been an issue of timing. I'm excited to see her return. It has been a massive hole in this season's story. Arrow promotes Rick Gonzalez and Julian Harkavy for season 6. Get ready to see more of Wild Dog and the new Black Canary next season on Arrow. The CW superhero drama has promoted Rick Gonzalez and Juliana Harkavy to series regulars for season 6. Both actors joined the show during the current 5th season. Gonzalez plays vigilante Rene Ramirez, known as Wild Dog, as Harkavy plays Dinah Drake, who's taken over the team Arrow's Black Canary role following the demise of Laurel Lance. Before joining Arrow, Gonzalez had roles on Mr. Robot, Rush and Reaper, and Harkavy played Alicia in two episodes of AMC's The Walking Dead and appeared in episodes of Constantine and Graceland. The CW renewed Arrow for a sixth season in January, and Harkavy may have her work cut out for her because Katie Cassidy is returning as a series regular for season six to play Laurel Lance's doppelganger, Black Siren. Trailer for Hulu documentary Batman and Bill puts a spotlight on Batman's co-creator. Everyone thinks that Bob Kane created Batman, but that's not the whole truth. One author makes it his crusade to seek justice for Bill Finger a struggling writer who was the key figure in creating the iconic superhero. From concept to costume to the very character we all know and love, Bruce Wayne may be Batman's secret identity, but his creator was always a true mystery. Directed and executive produced by Don Argat and Shiva M. Joyce, unmask the story of Bill Finger in the Hulu original documentary, Batman and Bill, May 6th, only on Hulu. 
Supergirl casts Smallville actor as Kryptonian supervillain General Zod. TV Line has confirmed that Mark Gibbon will appear as the infamous General Zod in at least one upcoming episode of Supergirl, which returned with new episodes this Monday. The reason for Zod's visit remains a mystery, but with the myriad of conflicts currently unfolding on the show, including whatever Queen Rhea has up her royal sleeve, it really could be anything. Interestingly enough, Gibbon already has quite a bit of experience in the DC universe, having appeared in episodes of Smallville and Arrow, as well as on the big screen in Man of Steel. New Justice League promo includes Superman. A new Justice League promotional photo has hit the web and it includes the Man of Steel himself, Superman. Rubies, a company that sells officially licensed DC Comics costumes, uploaded the image to tease their Justice League costumes as coming soon. The image also promotes a new Justice League website, jointheleague.com, and besides the first photo that was released at Comic-Con last year, Superman hasn't been included in any of the official photos or trailers. Some fans hope he stays out of the marketing of the movie completely, but I have a feeling we'll see him in one of the next few trailers. Ratings, Gotham's returns down, Supergirl also hit lows. Following a three-month break, Fox's bubble drama Gotham resumed season three on Monday night with a three million total viewer and a 1.0 demo rating according to finals, down 14% and a tenth from its winter finale to hit and match series lows. Supergirl returned from a month-long break to 1.8 million viewers and a 0.5 rating, down 18% and two-tenths to mark series lows as well. Not good for the DC properties this week. Powerless essentially canceled at NBC after remaining episodes pulled. NBC is pulling the plug on Powerless. The superhero-adjacent comedy has been yanked from the Peacock's network's Thursday night schedule, which means it's as good as canceled. The switch starts this week, with Superstore shifting to its former 8.37.30 Central time slot. Powerless starring Vanessa Hutchins as the research director at a security company that protects average citizens from the superhero battles raging all around them, has struggled in the ratings ever since its February 2nd debut. Last week's airing pulled in a mere 2.1 million total viewers and a 0.6 demo rating, a 30% drop in both categories from its Superstore lead-in. Two episodes of the show's original 13th episode order still have yet to air, including a guest spot from TV's original Batman, Adam West. It's unclear when or if those episodes will air. Along with Hudgens, the cast also includes sitcom veterans Alan Tudyk, Danny Pudi, Ron Funches, and Christina Kirk. This show wasn't great, but it had some funny moments. And that's the news with Nico, DC Headlines for this week. All right. Normally, Steve would join us for the Gotham section, but unfortunately, there was a little bit of a mix-up with schedules, and Steve didn't realize the show was on, and by the time I told him, didn't have a chance to get something together. So I'm going to be doing the Gotham review this week all by myself, but Steve will return next week for that. So let's jump right into that Gotham Heroes Rise review for Season 3, Episode 15, How the Riddler Got His Name. After killing Oswald, Edward tries to define himself by seeking out first a teacher, then a mentor. Meanwhile, Bruce receives a note from Selina requesting a meeting, and Jim meets with his Uncle Frank. Gotham returned this week from what was an entirely too long of a hiatus, a full three months, which is longer than some series' summer hiatuses. And what was the effect of the long winter or spring hiatus? Significantly low ratings. In fact, Gotham resumed Season 3 of On Monday Night with 3 million total viewers and a 1.0 demo rating, according to the finals, down 14% and and a tenth from its winter finale to hit and match its series lows. Seriously, what did they expect after taking what amounts to be an entire semester off? With Gotham being very significantly on the bubble this year for a renewal or cancellation, this was not the smartest move on Fox or Gotham's part to go this long without episodes and just assume that the show would come back with high ratings. And in reality, it was a shame that nearly nobody saw this episode because Riddler's official debut was actually fairly compelling to watch. Was it great? By no means but I would say it was better than the Tetch stuff early on in the season, and much better than the Lee and Gordon melodrama that has plagued the second half of the Mad City half of season 3. Luckily, the second half, which started with this week's mid-season premiere, is entitled Heroes Rise, which means that I think they are going to fix the Gordon character, and we will begin to see Bruce start with his movement towards becoming Batman, and the hero we know him to be in the future. We got a glimpse of that this week, when we saw those guys working with Selina decide to continue to kick his ass after she left, 
left, attempting to rob him, and he knocked them all on their asses. The Bruce as a love-struck teen was starting to get on my nerves, so I was happy to see Selena go out of her way to say she wants to be on her own in the mid-season finale, and in this episode to continue with that. The fact that she told Bruce to leave her alone will more than likely allow for an easier transition for Fives to take over as Bruce, something I have no interest in watching. But the interesting thing about that is that the Court of Owls seem to have spirited Bruce away to a mountain retreat or monastery, which, if this is the case, could mirror some of the stories we got of Bruce's training during the Batman Year One comic series and could be very interesting. It also implies that possibly we could see Bruce meet some of his future masters while he is away and on this trip back to Gotham City. If that is the case, I will begrudgingly suffer through the whole Fives impersonating Bruce story arc if we get to see the real Bruce training with his masters. As for Gordon, I'm not exactly sure what his uncle is playing at or what his plan is, but he told Catherine, the head of the Court of Owls, that Jim is intrigued. My guess is that the uncle is going to try to trick Gordon into helping him take down the Court of Owls, but they will actually be working for the court's interests, and it will not be until he realizes that Bruce has been replaced that Gordon will realize he is being used and start to fight back, thus the hero rising. This week's episode was an occasionally wacky, occasionally touching, and completely satisfying baptism of crazy that saw the final transition from tortured killer nerd Enigma to the Riddler, one of Gotham's most notorious villains and one of Batman's most enduring rogues, reluctantly guilty over killing his best friend Penguin, but not actually killing because we saw, of course he didn't, and seemingly aimless without political strings to pull, a vengeful murder to plot, or anything resembling a job or social life, Enigma embarked on Gotham's latest wave of terror by kidnapping the city's most brilliant minds, asking them his trademark riddles, and then disposing of them when their answers were disappointingly pedestrian and most importantly incorrect. Enigma is one of the characters we've been allowed to watch grow from his humble origins and one that Gotham has actually invested a lot of time and effort into cultivating as organically as possible. There was no magical growth spur or trippy dose of meta blood required to get Ed to where he is today. He was a slow burn and Gotham's care and restraint is allowing that burn to gradually build itself into the inferno that is the Riddler and that's one of the strongest developments of this show. I wish everyone or even almost everyone else could get or be given the same treatment because that is the kind of character evolution that makes or breaks any series, but especially a series prone to losing track of itself like Gotham has. Gotham is riddled with barely functional husks of characters who, if we're at all familiar with Gotham's source material, are instantly recognizable as key figures in Batman's mythology. Jim Gordon is the troubled but honorable standard bearer for the GCPD. Harvey Bullock is a gruff and jaded but no less honorable partner. Poison Ivy traditionally is a smart scientist who has a thing for plants. We all know that Bruce Wayne grows up to become Batman, and despite early efforts to sell itself as a Batman without Batman show, Gotham just couldn't resist tossing Bruce right into the thick of a vast conspiracy that may have gotten his parents killed and getting right along with those baby Batman training montages. Slow is good, Gotham. Taking the time to explore these characters in the deepest, darkest depths of their demented psyches gives us a much more satisfying payoff than magicking Ivy into a sexy new version everyone knew she was going to eventually become. You know, enjoy the journey and the destination. That is why this week's episode of Gotham actually paid off. The Riddler and the Penguin are the only two characters they seem to have allowed to develop and progress from humble origins towards what they need to be when Batman emerges. The Riddler's journey is far from over, given what we know about the rest of this season, and of course the not-all-that-surprising revelation that Penguin survived Nygma's assassination attempt on him. Their relationship is fractured, but maybe not completely. Nygma's mad search for a mentor may have ended with his realization that all he really needs is a proper nemesis and a really chic suit. But that's what's so great about what Gotham managed to do in this episode. This is relatively unexplored territory, and these two very distinctly different versions of the characters than what we've seen in the comics, films, and video games are really the best we've seen on this series. Gotham is enjoying its journey and hasn't given us any indication that it's settled on a final destination for these two best friends turned enemies. Along those lines, I really enjoyed the Nygma and Lucius Fox dynamic in this episode and could really go for some buddy cop scenes with Lucius and Harvey. Since we are not going to be getting much Bullock and Gordon, some Lucius and Harvey could make up for that in the time being. 
This was a fairly fun and decent episode and really was too bad that nobody watched it. If I'm being honest, I don't think that Gotham has a very strong case for renewal, and thus I hope the season finale this year can double as a great series finale and leave us happy with where things end up. If not, we're going to be really disappointed in the end, and that's always disappointing. And that's about all I got for Gotham this week. All right, and just remember, guys, Steve will be back next leading that discussion, so it won't just be me droning on about Gotham. Now I'm going to bring Michael back in, and we're going to kick off the rest of the DC Nation with the review of Supergirl this week, an episode I think we both actually liked. So that's that's a little bit different this season. So let's talk about the Supergirl episode, Ace Reporter. Kara interviews Lena's ex-boyfriend, Jack Sphere, during Jack's press conference and uncovers an issue with his nanotechnology development that leads to a potential threat. Michael, overall, I was fairly happy to have Supergirl return this week, and for the most part, minus a few cringeworthy moments, this episode seemed to steer mostly clear of the issues we've had this season, mainly being a traditional CW show rather than a CW superhero show. What was your initial gut reaction to the episode, and was it better than before or more of the same? Just your quick thoughts. You know, Nico, the show's been off air for a few weeks before bringing us back to the final round of episodes before the finale. And while I did like this episode on a basic level, it honestly didn't do too much for me, at least on an initial level. So maybe some discussion will open my mind to it. Yeah, you, you know, it was kind of like just an overall feeling. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I think this is a little bit more Supergirl than some of the things we've gotten previously. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into some of those reasons why. And I, I think I think it might open up your mind. It, you're definitely fair making some fair points there that it didn't really grab us or really you know feel like oh man that was amazing but i i did feel like it was a good return mm -hmm. um I, and i think we'll kick off that discussion with a few questions i don't know if you watch cw's i zombie but if you do then you would have undoubtedly have recognized rahul gahali from that series i really enjoy this actor especially on i zombie and he brought some of his charms to this episode as lena luther's former startup partner and ex-lover. The nanobot swarm villain is an interesting one I know we've seen before in an animated series, and I'm not sure which one that was, but I also believe I, we've seen him many times in the comics. But I thought it translated to the screen very well this week. I also thought the twist that it was indeed Jack Sphere that was doing the killing and had become the swarm, but that he was being controlled with no knowledge of what he was doing, was sufficiently done well enough in this episode that it fooled me. The writer did an excellent job of making us think that it was Jack, then question if it was actually him before revealing it was indeed him and then finished up that with a twist that he was being controlled. Michael, what did you think of this week's Nanobot Swarm villain? Was it too easily defeated for how deadly it was in the rest of the episode or did it make sense, much like the Death Star, that it had a fatal flaw in its design and ended up being fairly easily defeated? What are your thoughts? You know, the fatal flaw didn't bother me at all. Actually, I thought it was used quite well in the emotional climax of the episode really knocked it out of the park, I thought. The swarm villains are always interesting because sometimes they really work well and other times they're done so poorly that I just want the episode to be over. But I agree with you that Jack Sphere was actually great and a very sympathetic villain, which is something we haven't really seen on this series before, at least maybe not to this extent or on this level. You know, I definitely applaud the writer of this week's episode because unlike you, I just assumed Jack was in control the whole time until the ending. And the fact that they had that guts actually kill him off at the end was very impressive as well. Yeah, you're right about that. I, I think it was just because he's such a big part of iZombie and he doesn't have time to be yeah. a recurring that they didn't bring him on for a larger part because otherwise I think they would have kept this character around as a potential for a long time. But yeah, it does take guts to kill off an actor of that quality and a character that really had some emotional impact that much, you know, that much of an impact to kill him off in, in a single episode. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Michael. I also think it's kind of interesting that they decided to include Biomax on Supergirl where as Biomax is actually a Green Arrow villain originally. Okay. Which I thought was kind of different. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Monel took a noticeable backseat this week for the first time in a while. So much of this season has been about his relationship with Kara, and it was nice to remember that she has a life and a career mostly separate from him. And I think that might be why I really enjoyed his scenes this week. I feel like this is how they should use Monel going forward, where he is there to support and enhance Kara's story, but not the driving force behind her stories. There's 
scene where they accidentally on purpose ran into Lena and Jack Sphere at dinner and Monel lifted his security card was one of the best Monel scenes of the season. Considering that I thought his story and dialogue in the last episode was so much better and really enjoyed his new or subdued role in this episode, I'm wondering have the writers fixed this character or at least learned how they're going to use him? Is it too soon to be convinced and maybe it was just two good episodes in a row for this character that has caused us no end of issues with this series. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I think the best part of this episode for me was that even though the romantic subplots were all there, it really focused on the main story and the characters as opposed to the drama that to keep us engaged. I also like the use of Monel this week, but I'm not sure he'll continue to be used like that going forward simply because his mother is one of the big bads at this point, and thus he and Lena will have to have bigger roles in these final few episodes, and that may include some more relationship drama, especially once they figure out that Rhea is actually a villain and, you know, Mana won't want to kill her or maybe even imprison her, but Kara definitely will. My hope, though, is exactly what you said, that they have finally figured out this character and that he's going to be used correctly during the remainder of the season. I definitely agree. I hope that they figured it out, but I'm not convinced it will be that way. Just every time I get super excited about this series, they do something that kind of scares me or (laughs) ticks me off. And then it's back to, you know, why didn't they just do that? But I have hope. I have hope. These last couple episodes have been really good for Monel, and I hope that that's the way that it goes. Yeah. Anyway, another reason this episode might not have been as CW-ish was the complete lack of Maggie and Alex drama this week. Unfortunately, that also meant that there was absolutely no Alex in the episode besides that opening scene. Michael, where was Alex this week? Did it feel strange that she was essentially MIA the entire episode? I know the next episode is entitled Alex, and it focuses on her more since she's kidnapped and ransomed, but the Kara and Alex relationship and interactions were so instrumental to the first season. Did it feel like a real Supergirl episode without that? You know, normally I would say no to this question, and I, I think you would as well, but actually I did feel like the, it was a real Supergirl episode, and here's why. You know, Kara was the main focus. She not only got her job at Catco back, but she was also there multiple times throughout the episode, so there was a presence of Catco, or at least Cat Grant there in some capacity. Both Wynn and James were given actual real roles this week, which was also a huge staple of the series last season, and although we saw Alex and John briefly at the beginning, there was no talk of Maggie or Megan at all, giving us basic glimpses into their characters from last season without the the baggage of the season's drama. Plus, for whatever reason, I felt like Snapper was fairly caddish this week as well. And all that being said, you know, I think those may be some of the reasons why this episode worked really well. And talking about it actually worked a lot better than I thought it did for me. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that, Michael. I thought the focus on Kara and her stories with the other characters and enhancing and, and supporting that story and building on it was what was essentially missing all season or most of this season. So the fact that they included it this week is probably why I like this episode more than some of the ones we've seen previously. And along those lines, we have said a number of times that this series has failed to incorporate the Guardian and James story arcs into the episodes. In the last two or three episodes, we have seen more Guardian, more James, and more Team Guardian with Wynn and James working together and bonding. Even James calling Win his best friend in this episode. Michael, what did you think of this week's Guardian story? Was the addition of Lyra a mistake, or did you enjoy the interactions between her and James? Was the wrap-up at the end of the episode a little too sitcom-y, fixing the problem within the same episode, and maybe even too cutesy? What are your thoughts? You know, I kind of hated Lyra this week, especially <laughs> during that bar scene between her and Win, and the way they wrapped that up. You know, Win and Lara are clearly not in a healthy relationship, and is, they're in one purely based on physical and sexual attraction, not actual commitment. And to make matters worse, you know, James seems to approve of this by the end of the episode. And regardless of her previous temper tantrums, she seems to end up being the spoiled brat character who seems to get what she wants anyway. I didn't like that at all. And it it really, it was the only thing I think this week that really threw me off and kind of took me out of the episode for a bit. But I was really happy to see James on the street as Guardian and in the Catco office as well, which is something we really haven't seen a whole lot of since he took that role. But I was glad that we got to see it at all. You know, I thought he was used very well and very sparingly and if they could just get win back to normal I think we'd be in really good shape. Yeah, uh, absolutely and I, I feel really happy because honestly I was not a fan of Lyra's addition to the Guardian story at all and was sort of hoping that her exclusion in the middle of the episode was going to be something that was permanent. I think it steals from the Guardian and James and Wynn's stories by adding a character I don't care about into the mix. I don't think Lyra's funny the romance is not compelling and the whole backstory about her brother and, and her 
her only being a thief to save him. It, it did nothing to make her more interesting to me. Anyway, that was all I had to discuss this week for Supergirl, but Michael, was there anything that I missed and you thought was necessary to discuss? Anything you were looking forward to that was set up in this week's episode? Do you think the this heartbreak of Lena Luthor might be the thing that starts her down a dark path towards her true nature as a Luthor? You know, it may be, and I could see it, especially now with Rhea being involved and being able to prey on those emotions, and maybe even Lillian coming back and preying on those emotions as well. I don't know. But on another note, though, and it's a very similar note, I do think Lena may be figuring out that Kara is, in fact, Supergirl, especially after Kara told her that she would always be there to protect her at the end of the episode. Seeing Lena's eyes open during that exact moment in the scene made me believe that that's where the story is going, at least with her figuring out. I don't know if that means she'll turn on Kara or not, but I think I think she's going to figure out that they're one in the same sooner than later. Yeah, okay. That, that's a good idea and, and definitely a, a plausible theory for where things are going. I'm guessing you're correct that she's going to figure out Kara's secret, but where I differ or I go a little bit further on that is that I think Lena is going to go dark as well. And I don't know if that's going to be a, as a result of figuring out or Supergirl confirming that she is in fact Kara as well, or if it's something where Kara denies or or doesn't trust her or... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that could be kind of like a Lex and Clark thing. Yeah, exactly. And if that's where her path down the dark side is, you know, forever sealed. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I guess I didn't think about it that way. I, I guess I just kind of hope that she's different than her brother. Um, yeah, me too. Because, you know, even on Smallville, Tess Mercer was Lex's sister, and she ended up starting kind of as a villain, but became a hero by the end. And sure, it cost her her life, but nevertheless... She, she chose to be different, and I kind of hope the same for Lena. I would really like to see that. I think it would be more compelling than her going dark, but I have a feeling that it's just going that way. Alright, with that, I think it's time to wrap up Supergirl and we're going to move into the Flash episode, which was another episode that I think was, was really interesting and, and a lot of fun for both of us, and I think we're going to have some fun talking about. Let's talk about the Flash episode entitled The Once and Future Flash. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. While the team in 2017 search for Killer Frost, Barry travels to 2024 to find out Savitar's identity and discover that his friends' lives have taken very different turns after Iris' death. I really love this episode of The Flash this week, and maybe that was because it was expertly directed by HR himself, Tom Cavanaugh. This episode did not waste any time making an impact in its first episode back from a long three-week hiatus. We see Barry playing with time travel once again, something he's sworn to Jay and himself numerous times throughout the season not to mess with, but desperate times call for desperate measures. Essentially, this episode asks the question, if you were faced with the dilemma that Team Flash is currently dealing with, what would you do to make sure the ones you love didn't get hurt? Or more accurately, rather, what would you do to prevent the one you love from dying? In this episode, we watch as Barry reaches out for help from an unlikely place, his future self. I thought this was a brilliant idea and was masterfully done. It unfortunately did not yield the desired effect, but it did give us renewed hope that the device he returned with and a few new characters to seek out. So Michael, what did you think of Flash's return episode overall? I loved it. I thought it was a great way for the Flash to use time travel again without Barry ruining the past or turning it into an episode of Legends of Tomorrow. So I thought it was done very masterfully. That being said, I'm still pissed that I don't know who Savitar is, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I was expecting it as well. From the minute Barry arrives through the time portal in the future, we instantly know something is terribly wrong as nothing feels right. A newspaper tells him that it's the year 2024, so he's in the right place and the right time, but he is immediately set upon by top and Mirrormaster, who seemed amped up compared to the last time Barry and Team Flash faced him. We quickly learn that Iris died in this timeline, and it shattered Barry and Team Flash. Current Barry does a tour of where each member has ended up, and I've got to say, this was brilliantly done. Each time we saw a member of Team Flash, it was heartbreaking and yet seemed to fit each character. Cisco had lost his hands and thus his abilities, and yearned for the days of Team Flash, but did not let his tech genius go to waste as he fashioned robotic hands, and even a device that prevented Barry from time traveling. I wish Barry had taken that back in time with him yeah. as well, so current Cisco could maybe have adapted it to work with Savitar somehow. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> no, that's the easy way out. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> we saw Killer Frost and Julian were together still, although it was Julian working on a cure for her, and 
Killer Frost in Iron Heights, and we also learned a key factor of how things went down uh, and how they went so wrong was that Killer Frost helped Savitar in his mission in the past and learned who he was. We also saw Wally was so traumatized by his solo encounter with Savitar after Iris's death that he was left as a catatonic paraplegic. And then there was Joe, who seemed the most together of all the Team Flash, but had lost everything, both his sons and his daughter. And because this series always gives us humor and hope, we saw that HR had become a famous and successful romance novelist. Heartbroken and devastated by this encounter with the broken future Flash and the members of Team Flash, current Flash decides that he cannot abandon these people again and helps get the band back together by uniting Team Flash once again and pulling his future self from his depression and sparked the team toward recovery. Michael, of all the future versions of the characters we saw, which was your favorite? Which one surprised you the most? And how did you feel when the current Flash rallied the future Team Flash to work together again? I thought that part was great. It gave me hope that even if Barry can't save Iris this season, and you know we're still assuming that he will, that the team will always stick together, especially now that Barry knows what could happen. My favorite future character was probably Cisco because he was the most, well, he had the most depth to him, and he seemed to be the one that strayed furthest from who he was without actually completely losing who he is, unlike future Barry, who kind of just lost a little bit of everything. That that shocked me maybe more than it should have. Although I will say Future Flash's suit was awesome, and I cannot wait to see what updates the show makes to Barry's suit come season four. I'm not sure if any of the future characters surprised me other than Barry, though, and Cisco not having his hands. That was kind of shocking, but other than that, I can't really think of one specifically. Yeah, okay. Personally, I too thought that out of all of the other possible future endings, Cisco was the best story, but HR's was the most fun to see. And showing him to be the one to have survived the destruction of the team the best. But he and Julian's futures were probably expected, but Joe's was the saddest and most unrealized. Who would have thought that he would have to go through life alone after Iris's death? Because not only did he lose her, he also lost Barry and Wally as well. It's the worst ending for a person who deserves anything but it. Thankfully, it's something that us fans will only have to experience as a a possibility rather than something that's set in stone so that's good and actually that kind of harkens back to the episode where Barry crossed over or no the Flashpoint one where we see him die right was it Flashpoint where we saw him die where there was one yes I think so well there was one episode where we saw him die and it was so heartbreaking even though we knew it was going to get resolved it was like this was very much like that where it was like oh don't don't do something terrible to Joe come on (laughs) but anyway as Barry sets off to return home future Barry gives current Barry the schematics needed to trap Savitar. The only problem is that the scientists who can understand that information won't discover it for another four years. So the question becomes, can Barry track her down and save Iris in time? That is the hope that this episode gives us. And this was a great way for the show to return from a little hiatus. It told a solid story, involved two good villains who showed off their powers and who were previously established and allowed for an immediate impact on the story without wasting time on setup and the get-to-know-you. And best of all, the episode resolved everything with teamwork. These what-if type episodes are always fun to play with, but they don't always have an impact on the overall story. For Barry, it provides great insight into one possible future. But as we've seen on this series before regarding time travel and the future, we should know that there are endless possibilities regarding what may come. So when Barry does return home, he's got the power to set forth the slightest change that could impact the future immensely. Always remember Flashpoint. So Michael, what do you think of the introduction of this new scientist character and the search for her. Could she become the new Caitlyn on Team Flash until Killer Frost is defeated and Caitlyn returns? Or could Killer Frost become the big bad next season and this new scientist be the full-time replacement? You know, she could definitely become the team's replacement, Caitlyn, especially if Killer Frost doesn't get cured this season. You know, that honestly didn't even occur to me until you mentioned it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Because the future Julian, who's been working on a cure for years, still couldn't cure Caitlyn's Killer Frost persona, then what hope is there for the current Julian to do the same maybe with this new character there is and maybe along with that future tech that Barry brings back to the past maybe they can with all that but Julian certainly hasn't been able to do it by himself in the future in you know maybe in this new timeline now that Barry has seen the future Savitar will kill Killer Frost for possibly betraying him helping Team Flash for the final time which could lead to this new scientist character's full-time membership in Team Flash but who knows I, I don't time will tell 
Yeah, personally, I hope she isn't killed because I love Caitlyn, but it would be a noble sacrifice for sure. Moving on, the episode ends with quite the cliffhanger as Killer Frost meets up with Savitar, who leaves his suit of armor to reveal himself, but only to her. Michael, do you have any new theories on who Savitar might be? In my mind, it had to be someone Killer Frost knew immediately, so who could that be? Yeah, I'm going to throw both Ronnie Raymond and Eddie Fawn out there, because not only are they both people that Caitlyn would know and maybe even care about to a point, well, Ronnie certainly, but Eddie may maybe, but they both got sucked into the Speed Force upon their respected deaths in Season 1. Ronnie is the obvious choice because of Caitlyn's reaction, but honestly I'd rather it be Eddie, simply because the impact of him, of all people, killing Iris to hurt Barry, would be huge and would really change the impact that the character had in Season 1. Maybe even seeing what his descendant would become, the Reverse Flash Eobard Thawne, Eddie realized that he didn't want to be the nobody Thawne that Eobard told him he was going to be, and instead made it his mission to be the Flash's worst enemy, rivaling his descendant the reverse flash. Maybe this is a stretch, Nico, and maybe it's some serious wishful thinking like I was doing with my Prometheus's Tommy Merlin theory on Arrow this season, but I think it could definitely work. And that being said, I suppose that he could always be somebody who can make himself appear as somebody else like Thawne did in season one while pretending to be Harrison Wells, and that's why Caitlin decides to join. Maybe he looks like Ronnie, but isn't Ronnie. Yeah, wow, Michael, those are amazing theories, and I love them both. <laughs> I, I think you're correct that Eddie would be the one that would have have the most impact on the rest of the team and the whole series story-wise. But from the way that Caitlyn slash Killer Frost reacted, Ronnie is definitely the one that makes the most sense for sure. But those are all great theories, and I'm not sure which one I actually want to see because either one has such great implications for the future and the series as a whole. So I, I could really see really good stuff coming out of it being either Eddie or Ronnie or someone pretending to be those two people or either of those people. So yeah, I think there's a lot of good story there and a lot of good possibility. And then of course we had previously thought of Wally, uh, possibly the distraught and destroyed version of Flash, which kind of got thrown out this week because we see that yeah. version in the future and he becomes a hero again. But it was still a great theory at the time. Yeah, I think time will tell on this one as well. But before we move on, is there any additional thoughts on Flash this week? Something you saw that we, we should have mentioned or a favorite moment from the episode we haven't discussed yet? You know, I thought Mirror Master and the top were actually used much better this week than they were earlier this season, and I think part of that was because they weren't the biggest part of the episode, but they were still there and they made an impact. I mean, obviously Captain Cold and Heatwave are still my favorite rogues, but if we can't have them, then I think these two could work if used right. Yeah, absolutely. Alright, I think that's enough Flash this week, and instead we'll hand over the reins to you, Michael, to discuss the Arrow episode, Dangerous Liaisons. Oliver, Team Arrow, Argus, and the SCPD kick off a citywide manhunt for Adrian Chase. Meanwhile, Helix tells Felicity they have a way to find Chase, but they will need something big and illegal from her in return. This week's Arrow was an exciting first episode back, picking up right where we left off with Team Arrow looking for Chase, who's nowhere to be found and running loose in Star City. Nico, there's a good amount that we have to talk about this week, and I'm looking forward to getting into it, but what were your initial thoughts on this week's episode? Does it work as the first episode back in the beginning of the final five? Yeah, absolutely. Minus the Felicity stuff, I thought it dealt with everything we needed to see to kick off the Adrian Chase manhunt. We got a ton of Team Arrow without the Green Arrow, but with a masked Oliver, which was still interesting stuff. Plenty of action and development for virtually every member of the team. Some good Lance and Wild Dog stuff, or actually Renee, uh, who wasn't Wild Dog in this episode. And even some good politics and the mayor side of the story. Absolutely, this was the way to come back from hiatus. Yeah. Now let's start off with the elephant in the room. It's no secret that we here at DC Nation have not always enjoyed the character <laughs> Felicity Smoke. And it's also no secret that we despised her relationship with Oliver during the third and fourth seasons even more. But honestly, Nico, I kind of thought she was put to good use this week. Sure, I thought it was a bit risky and hypocritical for her to betray the team for Helix, working against them to do what she thought was right, but it actually kind of worked for me. I don't know why. Part of this was that Felicity's descent to darkness was more or less natural. I mean, ever since she sent the nuke to Haven Rock last season, she has been working 
working even harder to prevent death and destruction, add up her latest boyfriend getting killed by Oliver and Chase, and all that makes matters worse. Then there's a loss of her legs from last year as well. All this is to say, Felicity is going off on her own and doing what she thinks is right. And while it may not be warranted, it is somewhat understandable. And, you know, what sealed the deal for me was how they used Oliver and Felicity's past relationship this week. Oliver goes to plead with Felicity to to stop after Diggle makes mention that Ollie is the only one who can talk her out of it. And although she still rejects what he's saying, it still makes for a powerful moment between the two. Likewise, the very end of the episode mirrors that discussion with Felicity saying that Oliver never really trusted her. And while I disagree with that, I think this week it was more about him not trusting Helix and her. It still worked. Nico, what were your thoughts on Felicity's character arc this week? Did it work for you like it did for me? Where does this leave her with Team Aaron with Helix? Yeah, I, I could definitely recognize, Michael, the value of your points and even the necessity of finishing Felicity's descent into darkness and hopefully capping it off this episode. I, I, I did not enjoy this aspect of the episode by any stretch of the imagination. It just did not speak to me. We pretty much from the very beginning realized that Helix was using Felicity and for how smart they want us to believe Felicity is, she never realized that and in the end led Helix right to the Arrow Cave and potentially they could have been the reason behind the explosion that ended the episode. We'll get into that in a minute on the two possibilities. The other thing that really frustrated me about this episode was that Felicity went against the team. And alright, that was necessary for the story, but she just waltzes back in at the end of the episode after having screwed the team over, and all because she has what she claims was the thing that she did it all for. Oliver just accepts her back with no discussion, no comment, nothing. It's like, okay, okay, it was all worth it, I guess. When Artemis betrayed the team. Obviously worse, but similar. She was public enemy number two and was essentially lost to the team forever. Felicity just gets a pass after turning against the team and betraying them for Helix. That just didn't sit right with me. But of course, I am anything but unbiased, so maybe I'm just letting my hate for the character and her arc influence my feelings right now. Let the hate flow through you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, no I, I totally get that too, Nico, and I and I agree. When Artemis betrayed the team, you're right. It was, it was worse, but she was also public enemy number two. I think the only thing that maybe counteracts that point is the fact that Oliver was willing to accept her back into the fold in the episode where he was captured by Prometheus. And obviously she was playing him, but he was more than willing to forgive her and move on and try and work towards something better. And I think hopefully they can do that with Felicity. But I also agree. I think in a lot of ways, she's very hypocritical this week and her going against the team does need some sort of, I don't know, some sort of punishment is not the right word, but, but I think you understand what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, they need to rectify it in some way, and uh, yeah, you you make a great point about uh, Oliver being willing to allow or to forgive Artemis and for being deceived by Prometheus when he, he thought that was the case, and she was she was confessing that he tricked her and all of this stuff, trying to break Oliver. And it, I, I still don't think he would have brought her back onto the team, but he would have helped her escape and get out of there, and and would have set her up doing something else or, or living a different life somewhere else. So you're right about that. So that's, it, it does definitely still uh, work and and talk about like, there is the, the capacity for Oliver to forgive, but also I think it's forgive but not forget. And so I think that's going to cause some issues with Felicity still being on the team. But I don't know, maybe she just gets a pass because she's the uh, writers and producers favorite star of the show. <laughs> well, there's that. And I think also, you know, on some level, Oliver still probably loves her. And I think Diggle will maybe even give her more of a hard time than Oliver will which I kinda, I kind of hope. Yeah, I hope the rest of the team is kind of like, wait, she's just back? Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody at least brings that up. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of Helix, we found out that they were essentially using Felicity to break out one of their members from an Argus Black site. Elena, Felicity's Helix friend, has always proved useful to Overwatch, getting what she needs to help Team Arrow defeat Prometheus, but there's always a price. We see Helix leave with Caden James, who is not a pre-existing DC Comics character, by the way, but I don't believe that's the last we're seeing of them. Similarly to how Season 3 introduced us to Damien Dark before we saw him on the show. In the season of The Flash, had Abercadaver referenced the Thinker, uh, who could potentially be the season four villain on The Flash, could this Caden James character end up being our big bad for season six? And similarly to Oliver creating Prometheus, could Felicity have just put Star City, or possibly the entire world, in danger, potentially sacrificing one big bad for another? Nico, what were your thoughts on this? Is this a possibility? And will Helix end up being Team Arrow's next adversary uh, next season, like Hive was a year ago? 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, Michael. Like you said, we have seen this technique used previously on this series and on Flash, and if Helix is going to be the big bad next season, it makes sense that they would do that this season, even before Prometheus is defeated, to help set up next season's villain. I like the idea that Cade James, as the leader of Helix, will be the new big bad, and everything they learned and all the hacks and things that Felicity gave Helix will come back to bite Team Arrow in the ass, as it will allow Helix complete control over the NSA, Homeland Security, security, etc, etc, etc. This means that Felicity essentially gave the keys to the castle to the villain for next season. That makes next season's villain unique, that it's a Felicity-created villain rather than an Oliver one, which while that does not entirely entice me, I'm sure for many fans it will be very nice that it's now Felicity that created the evil villain. Regardless, I, I do think Helix will make a great villain regardless of who created or introduced us to them, so yeah, I'm excited about that possibility. Now, unlike Super outside of the Oliver Felicity romance, Arrow doesn't usually spend too much time on bad relationship drama seasons one and three aside, and instead likes to handle their characters' relationships a bit better than most CW series. Diggle and Lila were the closest uh, we got to that this week, and of course, I have to agree with Diggle when he says that Lila has changed since she took Waller's job at Argus. She is a lot more Waller-like than I think she's even caring to admit. Regardless, I read a comment online about this episode, and it got me thinking. Someone said that Diggle is one to talk about holding people against their will without due process when he, Oliver, and others on the team have executed people over the past few years. And to be honest, there's definitely some merit to that comment. I especially think of Deathstroke, Captain Boomerang, and how they're both locked up on Leon Yu without trial or anything. Diggle has no problem with that. Neither does Oliver, Lila, Felicity, anybody. Yet, that's where they stay. And I think it's interesting in the context of this Caden James character, if he does become the big bad next season, like we're speculating, there may very well have been a good reason that Argus was holding him against his will, and maybe this is something that Diggle will have to, you know, face later in the series. Nico, do you have any comments on this? Dig mentions that he's not sure he can get past this and that it's arguments like this that caused Lila and Diggle to get divorced the first time they were married. What's stopping that from happening again? Yeah, I didn't see Diggle's point or understand how he could criticize Lila for holding a known hacker terrorist without due process, but he has never had any issue with the army taking terrorists and shipping them to Guantanamo Bay or the same thing for Deathstroke and Captain Boomerang like you mentioned. This entire sequence seems like they needed a parallel conflict with Diggle and Lila to the one going on with Oliver and Felicity, and that just seems dense. I, I really hope that this is not sending them on a path to getting divorced again so Diggle can focus full-time on being Spartan, because the whole reason his character is interesting and unique to the genre is that he is, has a family to go back to at the end of the mission. He's not broken and alone. If they mess that up, I feel like they mess up Diggle as a character, and that would be almost, if not more tragic, than the whole Oliver and Felicity choosing them over Oliver and Laurel and then killing Laurel. I'll be really pissed off if they do a similar thing with Diggle, either killing Lila or splitting them up. I would be too, and I, I think you're right. That is what makes Diggle unique and different than any other character on any of these shows, quite frankly. I mean, yeah, Barry will have Iris once once they're married, and of course he has Joe, Iris, and Wally. They're kind of his family that he has to go back to, but, but Diggle is different because he has not only a wife, but a child. And, I, th you know, of course divorce can, can hurt kids, and I wouldn't want that to be a plot line that this show necessarily goes with. On that topic of family, Quentin confronts Renee about his daughter, and seeing her again, we find out that Renee actually hurt his kid, and that's why he's afraid to see her and hasn't seen her in months. I know this plot line is still moving with Renee on the path to regaining custody of his daughter, but I'm really looking forward to seeing this continue, and I'm really hoping he'll get her back soon. Eros played with the concept of fathers and their relationships with their children since day one, with Robert and Oliver, Malcolm and Tommy and Thea, Quentin and Laurel and Sarah, and of course Oliver and William last season. And that's always been heartwarming for me to see fathers with their children. Some characters like Quentin do it right, while others like Malcolm and potentially Oliver do it wrong, but nevertheless, I'm rooting for Renee. Nico, did you like that he got to see his daughter again, finally deciding to fight for her? Do you think he'll regain custody of her back this season, or is that something we're going to have to wait for next fall or even maybe next spring? Yeah, I did enjoy this, and what I really liked about it was that it was Quentin helping Renee to get his daughter back, one of the better fathers on this series helping a wayward father be better, to fight for his daughter and help mentor and guide him on the right path. Lance would give anything to have his daughters back, and maybe one day he'll get to have Sarah back from the Legends, but until then, at least he can help Renee get his daughter back and be a family again, which I do think will happen, unless they're going to go do something tragic now with Renee, and he'll get her back for some villain to kill his daughter, but that seems a little too dark for this series, so I don't I don't think they're going to go that
that dark. Uh, it is the darker s- series of the Arrowverse, but it doesn't have to go that dark, I don't think. But I'm not sure when that's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be this season or if they're going to push it to next season. Yeah, I agree. I, I hope that it's not something that they do. And I think if they were going to do that, they probably would have done that with Oliver and William last season. But I'm again, I'm glad that that didn't happen either. Yeah. Now, finally, there was no flashbacks this week, which honestly, I didn't even notice until the end of the episode because it had me pretty much engaged the entire time. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with them next week. However, the end of the episode revealed that Chase was already inside the Arrow Cave, sending an EMP right into the team's base of operations, causing an explosion right in front of Oliver and Felicity. I didn't expect this at all, and it is keeping me on the edge of my seat until next week's follow-up. Nico, do you have any predictions on how next week's episodes will go? Final thoughts on this week's episode and comments on the lack of flashbacks this week? Yeah, see, that was my initial thought on what happened at the end of the episode as well, that it was Adrian Chase had planted a bomb or he had somehow done something to the console and snuck in because he knew who Oliver and everything, you know, he had known for a long time who Oliver was. But after watching the episode, I thought that maybe the device that Helix made for Felicity was not actually a tracker like they promised and instead was a device that turned any computer she plugged it into essentially into a bomb and caused them to overload and blow all the circuits causing a fire or explosion. It probably was Chase that did, did it, but since we were talking about this episode setting up Helix as a potential big bad for next season, wouldn't that be a great way to do it? It's just a thought. And then, as for the lack of flashbacks, I too did not notice that, that there weren't any until after the episode was over because I was too engrossed in the plot and the story this week. It was not until reflection at the end of the episode that I realized that they had not flashed back to Russia or the island to kick that story off and was actually a little bit disappointed. Is this the first episode in the series without a flashback or have, have there been other ones before that I'm just not remembering? I, I think there have been others, but I honestly like, can't remember off the top of my head. Right. I know that there have been episodes where they've done flashbacks, but they've not been Oliver flashbacks to the island or to his time um, before the series. And it's been other characters who are spotlighted. But I'm pretty sure we've also seen one or two without flashbacks altogether. But again, I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. But as for what you're saying about Helix, I that would be a great theory. I like that a lot. I think that would be a great way to set them up. I just, I don't know if it's too early to set them up as big bads, because I don't know if we want to have the team chasing them and Chase at the same time. Right. I think it might be that if it is Helix, then they have to actively think, we'll get, we'll get them after we get Chase. We got to yeah, get that- him first. That's the only way I think it could work. Yeah, that would make sense to me. Nico, do you have any final thoughts on this week's episode? No, I really enjoyed it. Sweet, I did too. And I think that being said, I think we should just move on to our closing. All right, on next week's episode, we'll be back with more new episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, and Arrow. So make sure to join us for that next week. But for now and most of the season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows available as their own individual programs get the iTunes store get Google Play store guys for the podcast shows cut our network we have the DC Nation podcast located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com again that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com which reviews popular DC comics related TV shows get movies there's also the Marvelverse podcast located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com again that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows get movies and we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, got the mixed radio station, code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the podcast box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, and the Windows Marketplace, and a regular Windows or Windows phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, 
do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no the in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, Guy Google Plus. Go leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, James Hafel, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reifstick. And I'm Michael J. Patty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC Television. See ya! To put the music behind the news tonight Well, Mama said You can't believe everything you hear The diegetic world is so unclear So baby, close your ears On the news tonight On the news tonight The unobtrusive tones on the news tonight And Mama said Why don't the newscasters cry when they read about people who die? At least they could be decent enough to put just a tear in their eye Mama said, it's just make-believe You can't believe everything you see So baby, close your eyes to the lullabies On the news tonight Jeffster lives, man! We now return to our regularly scheduled program.